Hello, I'm Marissa Garcia, and thanks for tuning in to Season 4, Episode 3 of Tell Me More. This episode is another installment in the pursuit of our question to Harvard undergrads, what are your ties? And after I, alongside Claire Albert, interviewed Genesis de los Santos, I feel we came a little bit closer to understanding what weaves the fabric of the student body here at Harvard. Genesis is a senior here at the college, concentrating in history and literature with a focus in ethnic studies, and is currently writing her senior thesis on hair as it relates to femininity within the Dominican Republic, which coincides with her recent decision to cut her hair. She is Afro-Latina and was raised in Dorchester, Massachusetts, and even so, never stepped onto Harvard's campus until she was a senior in high school. Here's her story. Please introduce yourself. So my name is Genesis. I am a senior in Elliott House studying history and literature, and I'm from Boston. So before we get into the what are your ties question, which is the theme of the semester, I was wondering if you could tell us a little about your name, because I think that's really central to identity, and you have a really awesome name. So my name was given to me by my father, and it means the beginning, and I'm the oldest in my family, so I am literally the beginning of the De Los Santos, or the beginning of the saints, that, that's the meaning of my last name. And essentially, it was given to me by my dad and my aunt, and they both had very important religious ties to the name, and they decided that it'd be best if they named uh, me the firstborn Genesis. So it seems like your name has played a large part in your identity. And so going off of that, what are your ties here at Harvard? So my name has been a very important part of who I am growing up. It's a very common name in the Dominican Republic, but it's not pronounced Genesis, it's pronounced Hennessy's. And that has always tied me to my parents' national identity and how I perceive myself and I, how I carry myself through Harvard and through the world. But since I can remember in the classroom and at school, I was always called Genesis. And so I adapted this way of thinking of myself as two people, Hennessy's and Genesis, depending on where I was and who I was around. That would be how I would call myself. So here at Harvard, I go by Genesis, and it's been a very important part of the way that I've carried out my time here especially because I'm tied to this place because I am from Boston. And I think that especially when I was younger, I never saw Harvard as an accessible place, as a place that was accessible to a child of immigrants or uh, a person that came from the same background as me. And my ties to Harvard were not only figurative ties as in I knew a person that works at the Office of Career Services or the ties that I had which were the desire to come to Harvard but also it was like a physical tie because I think the red line in Boston is such a diverse line because it leads you to Somerville, it leads you to Tufts, it leads you to Harvard, but it also leads you into the depths of my neighborhood, which is Dorchester. And even though I came from this place where 
the red line connected Harvard and Dorchester, I still didn't feel as though I had access to a place like this until I stepped foot on Harvard's campus for the first time ever this summer before my senior year. So you're from Dorchester. Can you talk a little about your transition from Dorchester to Harvard? What was that like? So my transition into Harvard, wow, so long ago because I'm a senior, but I've always in a lot of ways, like my name, have carried myself in different ways depending on where I am. And I'm tied to different things. As a person, I'm tied to different things, but Genesis and Hennessy have different ties, essentially. And the way that I carry myself in Dorchester isn't exactly the same way that I carry myself here in Harvard, just because it's a different place. It's a very different place from Harvard. And oftentimes I find myself navigating these two worlds and feeling as though there's a tug of war between the two places that I'm tied to. So you have siblings, younger siblings. Do you feel like you're a role model for them? Or how do you identify as an older sister? Going back to the whole Dorchester thing, I think that my community is something that's very important to me. And it took me a long time to find a way to still feel as though I was a part of my community while being a part of the Harvard community. And essentially, this semester was the first time where I was able to balance both. And I started doing service through this PBHA program called Franklin After School Enrichment Program. And what we did, what we do is go into Dorchester during the days of the week and mentor and tutor students. So in that way, I found it much more accessible to tie the two places that I have connections to. In terms of my siblings, I hope that I'm a role model. I've had this issue where I wanna be the best that I can be, but I also don't wanna make them feel as though they have to follow exactly in my footsteps. And I think that's a very difficult line to balance, especially because I go to Harvard and my younger sister, Jennifer, she's a sophomore at Bentley University and I didn't ever want her to feel the pressure of having to attend an Ivy League institution or the pressure from my parents to even go to college because if that's not what she wanted to do, then that's not what she wanted to do. In my family, I'm both the caretaker and the glue, so I am almost the liaison between my siblings and my parents, especially because of generational differences and differences in understanding what education is like in the United States because they weren't born here. And I have always navigated that relationship with my parents and the relationship with my siblings in a way that was beneficial to my siblings and helped them understand that they could do exactly whatever they wanted to do and they didn't have to follow in my footsteps. Tell us a little bit more about your experiences going back in this Franklin after school program and what you've learned from that. From Franklin after school program, I've learned a lot about myself and how I view myself within my community as a Harvard student now. And one of the most important things that I think that I've learned is how to navigate those two places and how to ensure that I'm 
not taking up a lot of space because I feel as Harvard students, we often take up a lot of space in the Cambridge community and in different areas because we're entitled to take up space here at Harvard, but we're not always entitled to take up space in other communities. And I've found it hard at first to balance this idea of giving back to my community without making it feel as though I was trying to impose some sort of Harvard dogma on the students or on the kids. And I go every Wednesday afternoon, and my favorite part about going every Wednesday afternoon is that the kids know who we are and the kids remember us. And it's almost as though they forget that we're coming from Harvard, which I love because I'm able to sit down with them and talk to them as though I was their peer and really talk to them. And because I come from where they come from, I'm able to talk to them about the things that are happening in our community and the ways in which they can do things in their community and contribute to their community and make change. That was a hard thing to navigate at first, but going every Wednesday and seeing these kids, I remember the first day, I just was so astonished by not only the way that the older students took up leadership and helped the younger students with their homework, essentially that's what we do, we help them with their homework, and they live in this project complex called Franklin Field, and I'm the oldest, and my mom doesn't speak English. She only speaks Spanish, hence why I'm called Hennessy at home. And it's interesting how when she first heard my friends call me Genesis, she started melding the two and calling me Genesee, which is really interesting. But because my mom only spoke Spanish at home, I didn't have anybody that could help me with my homework. My dad was always working. And I think that this program is so beneficial to the kids because the program is actually run by another girl. Her name is Carmela, who also grew up in Dorchester near my house, about a block away, actually. And she is so adamant about teaching the kids that they have access to a place like Harvard, despite this idea that it's kind of shrouded by this cloud. In Boston and in a lot of Boston neighborhoods, it's almost seen as this mystical place where nobody ever really goes. And hence why I never stepped foot on Harvard's campus until I was a senior in high school. So can you talk a bit about how your growing up in Dorchester and your identity has influenced what you become involved in here at Harvard? I know you're involved in several cool groups. Talk about that. So growing up, I started this program that taught students, inner city kids, uh, how to essentially how to act, dance, and get musical training. And it was a community program that altered the way that I thought of myself in the performing arts and activism in the performing arts. And during my summers in high school, I dedicated my time to this program called the City Performing Arts Program. And kids from all over Boston neighborhoods were trained by professionals who wanted to train us and wanted to show us how to do these various activities, whether it was theater or music production. There were these professionals that took time out of their summers to come teach us and to really help us learn more about ourselves. And through that, I became really interested in theater. And at Harvard, one of the main organizations that I'm a part of is Black Cast, and Black Cast is a black performance art troupe 
who dedicates their time to creating performing arts spaces for people of color, no tea, no shade. Theater on Harvard's campus has not always been accessible to people of color, so black cast came out of that need and desire to create roles for people of color outside of being a maid, for example. So black cast has been such a central part of my experience here, and it has allowed me to talk about the black experience, the Latinx experience, the melding of both of those identities, which are very important to me on the stage and off the stage. I've produced a bunch of shows, um, Love Conjure Booze, Vanity Lane, but I've also acted in Love Conjure Blues and one particular show my freshman year that changed everything about my time at Harvard and changed the trajectory that I chose to take during my time at Harvard and it was called Black Magic. It, it described the Harvard experience through the eyes of a group of black students and was written by, she was a senior when I was a freshman. Her name is Kimiko Lawrence Matsuda and she was such an influential person early on in my Harvard career and has influenced me in a lot of ways carrying out my experiences here thus far and through Black Cast. I was actually just thinking about this earlier in terms of I come from a public school system and I remember when local schools were starting to lose their music programs and I was just thinking to myself this is such a problem when there's not enough funding in the public schools and you're really losing that opportunity to engage in the arts. Um, I was actually speaking to somebody who spoke of her theater experience in college thus far. So she goes to a private college and she often had to compete with a white demographic and so when she auditioned for roles, the people who were choosing who filled the roles decided to fill them with the race that was associated with the role and that she would oftentimes get put as what you were saying, the maid or the immigrant. And it became a problem of either the people who were filling the roles weren't really envisioning that roles didn't have to be race specific or that there aren't plays or musicals really written for people of color yet. How does Black cast interpret that? Do they just say we shouldn't see race in the roles or do you guys like to write your own play musicals with that? Or tell me a little bit more about how that um, works. So to touch on your point on music programs being lost in public schools, I think that the City Performing Arts Program actually provided a space because of the effects that public schools were having with money and with theater programs and music programs not being considered as important enough to be included in the curriculum anymore. So that was super important during my time in high school because we not only created our own pieces during high school, but we also created workshops that we would then go on tour and we would go to different uh, schools and community centers that were open during the summers to talk to the kids about either activism, gang violence, or police brutality, things that are going on in our communities that were very important to touch base upon. And so we would create workshops that were age-friendly and age-appropriate and included theater and poetry and the performing arts in a way that I'd never before had access to. So activism and the performing arts melded very early on into my experience in high school. And here on campus, Black Cast, I think, 
does its own form of work. We often put on plays that are self-written. Vanity Lane was self-written. Black Magic was written by Kamiko and a bunch of other students on campus, which are seniors now, including Ian Askew. And I think that oftentimes we want to provide a space for people of color to get involved in, not only in the acting side, but on the production side as well. Oftentimes we can't discriminate. We don't discriminate against any race or gender identity or anything of the sort, but we do try to provide opportunity and access to plays for folks that identify as black. So typically we do put on a lot of plays that have black main characters or main characters that are people of color. So in some ways we do stick to that, but in a lot of ways we want to expand the roles that are offered for people on campus, especially people of color. And that's our main focus is creating community around the performing arts in that way. I'm interested in sports here at Harvard, and one thing that I found is this Netflix series called Last Chance You, and it follows this group of football players that are all kind of rejects from these top Division One schools, and they have this really influential teacher, and they have a reading group, and it's all black men, and she makes a point that they're reading these books by W.E.B. Du Bois and, you know, these great black male role models, and she's saying that there's kind of three options in our pop culture for black men. It's like you're criminalized, you're in hip-hop, or you're a professional athlete, and that, like, we need to adjust that narrative, and I'm wondering how you think that your involvement in the black cast is doing that. Mm. So I think black cast especially provides a space for people of color to be seen as more than just those three things. This is very true. Like the, It's a trope that black men are either just in hip-hop rapping uh, with the mic in their hand, athletes, or in jail. And oftentimes, I think, as Harvard students, we're in our own little bubble and in our own little place. But I think that Black Cast does a good job of providing a space for all people of color, especially, but particularly so for black people, especially queer black people. I think that's often a segment of the black community on Harvard's campus that is marginalized and left out of the conversation. But I do think that in terms of the plays that we put on, we create roles and create plays and musicals that envision black people as more than just what you naturally think of them as, like you naturally imagine uh, a black person as, which I think is very important. For example, we had Princess, uh, she's a graduate student, she wrote her own ballet called Vanity Lane, and last spring, Black Cast put on Vanity Lane, and we envisioned and created a space for black ballerinas to dance and to perform and to show off that ballet, though classically a very white form of dance, is still something that can be accessible to people of color as well. So I think that Black Cast does a really amazing job of expanding how we see people of color and black people, especially because it is catered to the black community. 
Another thing that comes to mind when thinking about how we've expanded and pushed people to think against what they naturally imagine people as is we did this one show at the Museum of Fine Arts, actually. It was a one-day show called Every 28 Hours. And it was on the basis that it was a nationwide campaign that reminded us that every 28 hours, a black man is killed, either by another member of their community or by the police. But we put on this show that was a nationwide showing, and we joined this campaign because we wanted to push people to think about how they view black bodies and how black bodies are portrayed in the media, especially. Yeah, this is something I was just thinking about earlier. I was actually listening to my favorite classical music piece, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe classical music almost seems like a venue for people who are able to receive that training. And if you don't receive that training, then you've suddenly become disengaged from this narrative of this music type that we, for some reason, revere as the prototype. I think that ballet is so akin to that, and it's really cool that Black Cast addressed that in that regard. You also spoke about how you identify with the Latinx community. Could you tell me more about that intersection of your Black heritage as well as with your Latinx heritage? So I am Afro-Latina, and what that means is that my family comes from a lineage of Afro-descendant people, but Blackness in Latin America is something that is very intricate and complicated to talk about, especially in the Dominican Republic where there is a very interesting understanding of what race is. For example, my father didn't, you don't necessarily realize that you're black until you're told you're black when you come to the United States, especially because all of the people around you come from the same place. Everybody around my dad is Dominican and looks like him, and everybody around my mom is Dominican and looks like her. And when you come to the United States, that narrative is often challenged and altered by the way that your body is read by individuals here in America. So being black and Latinx is always interesting to talk about because oftentimes people think that you can't be black and speak Spanish for some reason. <laughs> it's funny to say, but it's true. Oftentimes, especially growing up, I was categorized often by my peers as Spanish because that's the way that people from my neighborhood talk about Latinx folks, but that's something that I often rejected. I reject the word Spanish because I'm not Spanish. My parents aren't from Spain, and I reject the <laughs> I speak Spanish, um, but they're not from Spain, and I also reject the word Hispanic because it only really speaks to the idea that you speak Spanish and that you come from this heritage of colonialism that imposed their language on an already existing group of people and then also brought in slavery to the country. But I think being Latinx and black, being Afro-Latina has been such a central part of my identity and it has allowed me to navigate multiple spaces. It's been hard to navigate, but as I do with home and Harvard and with any other space that I'm a part of, I tend to navigate them in similar ways. And at Harvard, I found 
myself connected to the black experience in a way where I didn't necessarily find the same sense of community amongst the Latinx community. And a part of it was my own fault, I think. I was very involved in the Latinx community early on in my time at Harvard. I was freshman rep for Fuerza Latina. I was social chair for Fuerza Latina my sophomore year. And I almost kind of got frustrated with the way that black identities in Latin America are talked about, or not talked about really, is what I'm trying to say. It's not discussed. Blackness in Latin America is really not discussed. So I was almost frustrated with that in a lot of ways. And I think my engagement with the Latinx community here on Harvard has been limited in a lot of ways because of that. But I still find a balance between the two, and I still very much feel a part of both communities. So I'm taking this class about education in the U.S., and especially public school education. Like, I also went to public school, and it's kind of been exploring a main theme is, like, dilemmas and equity and excellence. And the whole first unit was spent talking about school's purpose and how it's evolved. So I was wondering if you could answer that question. What do you think the purpose of schooling is? I think the purpose of schooling is to provide students with the opportunity to expand themselves and expand their learning. But I do not think that schools do a good job of doing that, especially when it comes to styles of learning. I often find that schools have a hard time catering to students that don't have a typical style of learning or that need a little bit more help in the classroom. So I went to public school up until middle school. So it's interesting to see myself and my schooling compared to one of my siblings' schooling because all of my siblings have gone through different types of school. I feel like my parents have been trying different things out. <laughs> and I went to public school with my two younger siblings up until I was in middle school, and then they kept going to the same school called the Boston Renaissance. And it wasn't until fourth grade that I was introduced to this program called Stepping Stone. And the Stepping Stone Foundation essentially takes these kids from local public schools, inner city public schools that are high achieving. And that's another word I kind of hate is high achieving. What does that mean? Can't all students be high achieving students? So they take these students that are recommended by their teachers as high achieving students and essentially, it was a 14-month program that challenged me. And for two summers, we would go to Milton Academy's campus, which is a private school in Milton, Massachusetts. Every summer, we would spend around six weeks at Milton Academy learning, taking summer courses from TFs and teachers that were paid by Stepping Stone, but just people that wanted to see us challenging ourselves. And so they took us and they would bus us into Milton Academy from our neighborhoods over the summers. And then during the school year, after school, on Wednesdays and Saturdays, so Wednesdays after school, I had class from the moment I got out of school, 4.30 up until 8 p.m. And from 4.30 to 8 p.m., I would essentially have more class after school and we would get homework for class and we had to get it done by every Saturday and every Wednesday and it almost kind of taught me discipline and taught me how to challenge myself and they were essentially preparing us 
to apply to private or independent schools in the Massachusetts New England area. So during the academic school year was when we would apply to these schools. I think I applied in February. And you would hear back by April. It's almost like the college process all over again. And you would hear back by April. So I remember being really disappointed because I didn't get into this school that I really wanted to go to. But I started going to private school with one of my best friends. Her name is Destiny. It's kind of interesting. Destiny and Genesis. <laughs> but I went to middle school in Weston, which <laughs> is a predominantly white and wealthy area of greater Boston. It's in the suburbs. And that was the first time I'd ever stepped foot in the suburbs, ever seen or understood what it felt like to be a minority in the schooling system because I was always surrounded by people that looked exactly like me, except for my teachers. My teachers were mostly white women. But going to school in Weston at the Meadowbrook School of Weston was the first time where I kind of felt othered and felt different from everybody around me. And then from there, I went through Meadowbrook and again applied to schools in February in in February of my eighth grade year applied to different high schools and started high school at the Noble and Greenham School which is another private school in Dedham Massachusetts so my journey through school has been very interesting and even though I only went to a public school for my early education the difference between my schooling and my younger sister's schooling she went to Boston Latin Academy. It's a public school, but it's still an exam school, so it is almost like, quote-unquote, a step up from a public school. And she went to school in our neighborhood in Dorchester, so she never felt removed or felt like she had to navigate multiple spaces or feel like she was two different people in two different places, which I always find interesting that we had those two experiences. But even her going through college right now and the way that she feels that she wasn't prepared for her writing heavy courses differs a lot from my experiences because I had papers and I had to write big papers during high school and I had to learn what a thesis was and all of these things and it really hurt our experiences were so different and because of our access to education and because of the places that we chose to go to school and not everybody can have access to a private education. Luckily, I was on financial aid and was able to have that type of access, but that's not something that's accessible to everybody in the public school system or everybody that wants to get out of the public school system. I don't think it's necessarily on the schools. I think that teachers do the best that they can with the materials that they have. And oftentimes, teachers in public schools have to pay money out of their own pockets to create welcoming classrooms and to provide materials for students. So it's such a difficult thing to navigate. And I'm considered a member of the privileged poor, essentially. Yeah. The privileged poor is essentially these low-income students that end up going to private schools for their education, these elite New England private schools that are recognized by colleges like Harvard. And it's interesting to navigate because I've always felt this tied to my neighborhood and I've always felt as though I was a member of my community, but I was away from my community for a large part of my time in high school and through middle school. I was always moving outside of 
my community to go to school, moving outside of the places that are home and are, are, are my safe places. It's frustrating because I hate the idea that I had to leave where I grew up in order to ensure that I was bettering myself. And it's frustrating to think that a place like Dorchester can't already be a place where you can succeed and alter the way that you go through your education. So while here, actually, I do a lot of work in the undergraduate minority recruitment program through the admissions office to make Harvard a much more accessible place for students that go to public school and that are from my neighborhood, that are from the area. And I think that that's something that's always been hard for me to grapple with is this idea that I have been graced with the opportunities to go to schools like Meadowbrook and schools like Nobles, and that's something that my younger sister didn't necessarily have the opportunity to do. She applied to these schools and didn't get into them, so she opted for our local public. BLA is a exam school, so it is a good school, and I think that she did learn a lot from her experiences there, but I also think that there is a giant gap between what it looks like to go to college and come from this background of being in these elite spaces and coming to a school like Harvard, you're already prepared to navigate almost these very white, elitist, wealthy spaces. And that hasn't been necessarily the experiences that my younger sister has had. She's had a much more difficult time transitioning into college into predominantly white institutions. Um, so it's interesting to see how that has played out through our journeys in education. So my baby sister is nine and she goes to public school, but my parents are constantly trying to get her out of her public school, which I find very interesting. I think that they want her to excel and they don't think that she'll excel unless they take her out of the school system in Dorchester. And my younger brother, he currently goes to school at my old high school. So it's interesting to see how he is navigating those spaces and how eventually he'll go to school and will be faced with some of the similar issues that he faced during high school. And he'll be one step ahead. He'll be able to be prepared to navigate elite spaces that historically were not built for certain people whether it be women, people of a particular gender identity, or sexual identity, racial identity, et cetera. I think that makes me wonder a little bit, has the role of the school changed over time depending on who it's offered to? Or is it merely the same mission, but that it's being opened up to multiple people? And I, I, I don't know, I'm really intrigued by that question. But what I'm interested in asking you is, what do you study? So I study history and literature, specifically through an ethnic studies track. And so that one was hard to explain to my parents. <laughs> um, I was really caught up in studying something that I thought would be practical and would get me a job after college in any field that would make me a lot of money because I feel as though a lot of Harvard students want to make a lot of money. but. 
I realized that the things that I was most passionate about growing up and in high school, the people that most impacted me were my history teachers and my English teachers. I had an English teacher in high school. My little brother actually has her, I think, now. It's kind of interesting. Her name was Miss Phelan, and she expanded the way I thought of literature and expanded the types of books that I was reading. And my history teacher, Mr. Bryant, love that man. He had this race and political theory course that he taught for juniors and seniors as an elective. And he really expanded the way that I thought about race and the way that I thought about myself in the context of race. Are you writing a senior thesis by any chance? Would you like to talk about that at all? (laughs) So I think that something that has been a common pattern for me while at Harvard has been pursuing the things that I'm passionate about. At first coming in, I felt a pressure by my family and the people from my community almost to take advantage of all that Harvard had to offer. And I think that they had a very particular perspective on what that would look like. And essentially, I thought I was going to study economics. But here I am studying Histon Lit and doing things that I really enjoy, reading and learning about things that I really enjoy. I'm writing my senior thesis on actually what race looks like in the Dominican Republic and how hair texture and hair and the Dominican hair salon play a large role in contextualizing these ideas of blackness and race in the DR. So I'm writing about myself in a lot of ways, which is really interesting. And I just recently, around, I think it was in August, cut my hair. I had a lot of curly hair. And hair has also been something that I've been tied to during my experiences. And I thought, why not write a thesis on both something that I've been tied to and that has tied me down in a lot of ways, I had always wanted to cut my hair because I thought I needed it too much to feel beautiful, to feel like myself. My hair was a large part of what that felt like. And so this past summer, I not only cut it because I wanted to cut it, not because I wanted to, but because I was scared to cut it. And and because I was scared, I was like, this is something that you have to do. But I also cut my hair because my mom actually has breast cancer and she's been dealing with this idea of femininity and what it looks like to be a woman without breasts, what it looks like to be a woman without any hair and how she can navigate these ideas of and conceptions of femininity that she's had since she was a young woman. And so I decided to cut my hair to almost stand in solidarity with her and show her that our femininity isn't defined by how much hair we have because hair is such an important part of Dominican culture. I think that's what was so difficult was that growing up, so much attention is put onto hair. I think in a lot of communities, not just the Dominican community, but in a lot of communities, hair is such a symbol of womanhood. And to cut it all off and to expand what people think of when they see me and to push people to see me past my hair and to see me was something that really drove me to even want to write a thesis about hair as well. Any last thoughts? I think this question of what are your ties is so important in helping us think about 
what are the things that drive us while we're here? What are the things that motivate us? And in these past couple of weeks, I've been feeling quite unmotivated and quite unlike myself in a lot of ways. And I think that thinking through all of these things, there are a lot of things that push me to excel and push me to be and to do everything that I want to do here on Harvard's campus and off of Harvard's campus. And that's largely my family. So the way that I navigate a lot of places is with this idea in mind that my family is a driving force behind me. But I also think that it's pushed me to think about what, what my time here, the rest of my time here, the last semester of my time here will look like and what I want it to look like. I think that oftentimes as Harvard students, we're so focused on either getting the bag, securing the bag, <laughs> or almost so focused in on our own little worlds that we forget to expand ourselves and get off campus and do things that we enjoy. I don't think that many Harvard students do everything that they enjoy and indulge themselves in doing the things that they want to do. So last semester, I studied abroad in Paris. And I think that it was such an important and influential time in my experience at Harvard. They always say this at the Office of International Education. The best decision that people make when they go to Harvard is to get off of Harvard's campus. And it truly was one of the best decisions that I made was leaving this place and expanding what I thought of as the world because I think that I was so caught up in what was happening on this campus that I forgot that the world was so much larger than just Harvard. And when we leave, Harvard's still always going to be there, but our worlds are expanding and we have to move away from Harvard in a way that we haven't had to before. So going to Paris, I had my host mother, some people don't really like homestays because not everybody has a very good experience. It's up in the air what type of experience you'll have, and this was scary for me. I had never been away from home, lived in Boston my whole life, lived in Cambridge, not too far from Boston. My mom comes at least once a week to drop off food. So it was the first time that I had to expand myself outside of this place in a different way. And it was the first time that I was living away from home for a long period of time. Six months is a long time to be away from home. And when I got there, I was having a hard time transitioning. It was almost like I was a freshman in college all over again, transitioning into a new culture, a new language. And ultimately, I learned a lot about myself through my homestay parent. She was this very boss lady. She immigrated from Iran, lived by herself in Paris, put herself through the school system in Paris, went to college, became an architect, runs her own architecture office or bureau, and essentially created a business for herself and has three kids who she raised and did so partly on her own because she did get a divorce. And one of the things that I learned about her and about being in a space with a lot of women, because her daughter also lives with us, she was 24, 
a very chic woman. I learned a lot about fashion from her. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of what I learned was there's this one phrase that is going to follow me, I think, for the rest of my life. And it's the term, il faut profiter. And what that means is you got to take advantage of every opportunity. It doesn't exactly translate like that in a lot of ways. But it's essentially grasping and taking advantage of even the closed doors, which I have a hard time doing. And I think that some doors have closed since I've been back to Harvard's campus, especially with my relationship with certain people and with certain friends. But these are moments and opportunities to expand myself and push forward and learn more about myself. And I think that that's something that everybody should take away. I, as you can probably tell, have a lot of ties to a lot of different things. And this one phrase is something that I think will continue to play itself out throughout my time at Harvard, but also into the next phase of my life. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Tell Me More. If you know a Harvard undergrad whose story our podcast simply must capture, please email us at podcast at harvardindependent.com so we can recruit them as soon as possible. You can also visit harvardindependent.com slash podcast for more information. You can listen to us there, or you can even listen to us on the podcast app on your iPhone. As always, thanks to the staff at the Indy for supporting our ever-growing podcast team. And of course, a special thank you to Claire Albert for contributing to the production of this episode. You can follow the Harvard Independent on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as forever promised, all those links will be available in the description. That's all for now. You'll hear us when we return with our next episode. I'm Marissa Garcia, and this is Tell Me More, brought to you by the Harvard Independent.